0: Good morning, Winnetka Bible Church. It is so good to be able to say those words. Uh, For those of you who don't know me, my name is Aaron Adams. I'm the former associate pastor at Winnetka Bible, and uh, I'm coming to you from Greeley, Colorado. You get to see just a tiny bit of Bethel Baptist Church as you look around, and I want you to know from the bottom of my heart and Heather and Helena and Camille and Kyla's hearts, we love you, we miss you. We pray for you and we can't wait to see you again sometime soon Uh, months ago uh, we had planned for me to be in winnetka on may 24th and have the opportunity to be your your guest preacher and through the wonders of technology i'm still able to do that even though we're far away so know this that even though we're far away you are in our hearts and and we love you guys and it is a great privilege to be able to walk through god's word with you today And so I encourage you and invite you to turn to John chapter 19, and we're going to be there today, but first we're going to pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you are with us as we open your word. I thank you that you've promised that when we open your word, that you speak and that no word returns to you void, but it always accomplishes the purposes that you have for it. I thank you, Lord, that here in John chapter 19, you call us to make a decision about your son Jesus Christ, to look upon him who said, it is finished, and respond with faith. And so now as we open your word, we pray that your spirit would call to each one of us so that we would respond in faith, knowing that your son in his death has won life for us. I pray it in his name, amen. John chapter 19 is the chapter in John where we see Pilate delivering Jesus over to crucifixion. We see his crucifixion itself. We see the words of Jesus from the cross. And here in this text, we see an, a critical aspect of what we call atonement. As we look at the, the Christian scriptures, that word atonement is a very important piece of our understanding of our salvation. And so as we over at Bethel put together our, our Easter series, Atonement was our key word. We looked throughout the the Scriptures to see what atonement is and what we discovered and what I hope that you will see here today in this text is that atonement is God's work of reconciling us to Himself. It's made up of, of three pieces in English. It's at one meant, And this is one of those words that, one of those rare theological words that doesn't come out of Hebrew or Greek or Latin, this is a, an English original. It was an attempt by uh, Eng, early English Bible translators to get at this idea of salvation being God bringing us back together with Him through salvation. That we who once were separated from Him by our sins, by His act, are reconciled to Himself. As Paul says, in christ god was reconciling the world to himself we see this throughout the scriptures as the story of our salvation that uh, uh, in isaiah chapter 53 for example a text that shows us the depth of god's mercy in his messiah that in in isaiah 53 verse 5 it says but he was pierced for our transgressions he was crushed For our iniquities, upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. In atonement, we have peace with God, not because of something that we've done, but because God has worked peace with his world. And the way that he does that is by taking on our sins. That's why it says he was pierced for our transgressions. In other words, He Himself is our peace. Now, those words in Isaiah chapter 53 were given during a time of unprecedented upheaval in God's uh, people, the people of Israel. Uh, In that moment when He says that upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace, people would have looked around and said, there's no peace here. We haven't known peace in a long time. And that's one of the reasons why this theme of atonement is so critical in every age, in every day, for every people, because all of us know deep down inside that until we have peace with God, we will not truly have peace around us. And so this theme of atonement comes up again and again in the Scriptures. Atonement was the, the focus of the whole Old Testament sacrificial system. And here in Isaiah 53, we find out that Jesus Himself is the sacrifice that brings us peace. He's the focal point of all the Old Testament uh, sacrificial system. Here we find out that Jesus is the one through whom we are justified before God, that because of His righteousness and His death for us, that we are able to be called just because we're clothed in His righteousness. We learn in Luke chapter 23 and throughout the Scriptures, but especially in one of the other words of Jesus from the cross, that atonement means forgiveness of our sins. In Luke 23, Jesus said from the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And then we also learn in the concept of atonement that God brings rebels and turns them into sons, that through His work of atonement, we are able to be adopted and become children of God by faith in Jesus. But here, in John chapter 19, we discover another aspect of this idea of atonement. Here, today, we see Christ, the King, condemned for us. But in spite of that, here what we see is not failure, but victory. Every detail in the text points to this unexpected reversal that demonstrates that what Pilate thought was Jesus' failure, what the priests and and the Pharisees thought was failure, was actually victory. And what the people looked and mocked as failure was actually the king victorious. And so we're going to look at this text, chapter 19, beginning in verse 13 and going through verse 37, and we're going to do it in four points. And the first point begins in verse 13, where we see our Messiah enthroned. Here we see in, in chapter 19, beginning in verse 13. A change happened in the trial of Jesus. Pilate has brought Jesus before the people, and the chief priests and the Pharisees, they say, crucify him. But Pilate knows that Jesus has done nothing to deserve that kind of punishment. Pilate has washed his hands of the situation, as if to say that even though he's the one who's actually going to hand Jesus over, that he has no responsibility. And so Pilate sits down and pronounces judgment, and then Jesus bears his cross to the city gate. We see at that point the soldiers have Simon of Cyrene take over. As Mark chapter 15 verse 21 tells us, Simon of Cyrene is coming into town, and Jesus carrying his cross to the city gates is no longer able to bear the weight of it. And so Simon is forced to take part of that punishment. You see, part of the punishment of the crucifixion was to bear your own cross, but exhaustion and injury and loss of blood often made it necessary for the Romans to instead require someone else to finish the job. And so they take Jesus to the place of crucifixion, and the text tells us that he's crucified between two others. He's numbered with the transgressors, as uh, Isaiah 53 verse 12 says. The other gospel writers tell us who those other two were that he's crucified between. It tells us that they were thieves and insurrectionists. But the only thing we know from John's gospel is that they were transgressors, sinners. We're also told that Pilate's inscription reads, Jesus, the Nazarene the king of the Jews, in verse 19. We're told that many read that description. Crucifixions were public spectacles, and people were attracted to them by compassion and by cruelty. But the Romans also deliberately put the place of crucifixion in the way, often on a hill just outside the city or lining the road or on either side of the gate, so that it was impossible to enter or exit the city without seeing those who were being punished in this way. And the sign, Jesus, the Nazarene, the king of the Jews, was written in the language of the Jews, which was Aramaic, but it was also written in the legal language of Rome, in Latin, and it was also written in Greek, the common language of the province. Crosses were not typically very tall. They would have just been a little bit taller than the man crucified on them, just tall enough that he can't touch the ground. And so that sign close to the roadway there on the hill would have been easy to read like a street sign from the road. Why did, G- Why did Pilate do this? Why did he write King of the Jews? We learn from John's gospel that the chief priest's wanted to be distanced from that claim. They did not want it to be written this way. After all, they had just shouted in John 19, verse 15, we have no king but Caesar. Pilate, in chapter 18, verses 33 to 38, asked Jesus point blank, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus responded, my kingdom is not of this world. And so Pilate knew this man is no earthly threat to his political authority, even though the chief priests had put him before them, before Pilate, as if he were a political threat. But when Pilate tries to release Jesus, verse 12 says, the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. And that's where everything changes, because now Pilate knows he's not guilty of the things that they claim, but they've framed it in terms of treason. If you don't give us this thing, then you are a traitor to Caesar. We know from the writings of other first century authors that Pontius Pilate was a brutal vindictive governor this was not a man who gets backed into a corner and forgets it he gets his revenge and it's right here he hangs the title king of the jews on this man whom the jews had rejected not because he believed it was true but precisely because it upset them pettiness was Pilate's specialty Imagine the message that Pilate sends with that title, Jesus, the Nazarene, the king of the Jews. Pilate says, your king is pathetic. He's a mockery. You see, kings and monarchs have always been symbolic of the people that they rule. Pharaoh represented the might of Egypt. Queen Elizabeth II represents the strength and stability of the British people. In ancient Israel, David was a picture of his people, a reminder that he was a man after God's own heart, and they were called to be the same. And Pilate now says to these chief priests and Pharisees who manipulated him, this is what I think of all of you. But what Pilate intended as an insult, God made into a decree of coronation. Pilate wrote it in three languages to shame every Jew in Jerusalem expecting that the joke would die with Jesus. But what he wrote on one wooden plaque in one city has now been proclaimed in books and letters and articles and songs and posters and Facebook posts and emails from one end of the globe to the other without ceasing for 2,000 years. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is King. He is Messiah. Jesus is the King of the Jews. And what Pilate wrote in Aramaic and Latin and Koine Greek has now been declared in English and Spanish and Arabic and French and Japanese and Chinese and Russian. The name of Jesus has outlived the languages in which this sign was written. The slogans of Rome in Pilate's day Where Rome is eternal, Rome is unconquered, but the man on the cross has outlived Rome. And this is where we see God's hand at work, in the hand of Pilate. What Pilate intended as an insult, God intended as an unintentional truth. Don't let anyone ever tell you that God doesn't understand irony because these words, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews, Pilate's insult, proclaim for all eternity that the cross, the instrument of punishment and humiliation, has become a symbol of kingship, Christ's kingship. At his coronation, a king climbs up the steps of a royal dais, a platform and takes his seat on his throne for everyone to see. Here, Jesus climbed the hill and took his place. See the Messiah enthroned. The symbol of his kingship is not earthly power, but humility. Just one day earlier in John chapter 12, Jesus recognized that the time had come for him to lay down his life for us. And he said to his disciples in John 12, now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say, Father save me from this hour, but for this hour I have come to the. but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify Your name. And then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. Here in the cross, His name is lifted up and glorified. And then Jesus says in chapter 12, verse 31 and 32, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. This was Jesus' mission. This was the purpose of the king. The entire Old Testament had pointed forward to this one moment where the cross Becomes a throne for God's Messiah, set upon the dais that the Father Himself had prepared, that hill, Golgotha. And we must look at the words that Pilate wrote and decide whether we will take them as Pilate intended or as God intended. Do we see in Jesus the triumphant Messiah, the King of Israel, the fulfillment of God's promises to us, or do we see Him as a joke, a slap in the face, a mere tool in an empire's oppressive hand? The course of history has demonstrated the answer that we should give. 2,000 years later, we still look back upon the death and resurrection of Jesus as the turning point of all of history. No other man's death has transformed the world like His death. Why is that? It's because He is exactly who He claimed to be. Friends, whether you've been a Christian for years or if you're still investigating the message of Jesus, consider this. Consider the wonder of God's plan for our salvation that in such an unexpected and astonishing way He would turn the insults and mockery of Pilate and the chief priests and crowds on their heads. The Messiah's mission was to be our atonement, our substitute, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He is the King of the Jews and the King of kings. Pilate and the chief priests thought that the cross was the end of his story. But look where we are today. We bow to him because of the cross. Notice what happens next in verses 23 to 27, and this is our second point where we see the servant who gave all. The four soldiers divide Jesus' garments, and the four women stand nearby. The soldiers took for granted that the condemned man's clothing now belonged to them. But what they didn't know was that even that mundane detail was known and expected and foretold by Jesus. The night before, as Jesus ate the Passover meal with his disciples, John 13 tells us that he rose from supper and laid aside his garments and tied a towel around his waist and washed his disciples' feet. And they called him rabbi, lord, master. But here, stripped to his undergarment, he sat at their feet as a servant. His lordship was like no other. At the time, Jesus told his disciples in John 13, verse 7, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterward, you will understand. And now on the cross, he has given up his garments again in order to serve and to wash his disciples clean The soldiers believed that they took Jesus' clothes just as they believed that they took His life. They did not realize they were fulfilling the words that God had foretold in Psalm 22. They did not know that Jesus had walked to Jerusalem in order to be crucified, to lay down His life and take it back up. No one took from him what he had not decided to give, not even his clothes. And so he served even his captors, his executioners. The four women stood by, including three women named Mary, his mother, the woman named Mary, wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. Jesus' mother Mary seems to have been widowed at this point because Joseph is not mentioned during Jesus' adulthood, and Jesus' brothers did not yet believe in his mission, and so here she was, alone, watching her son die, but Jesus sees John, the son of Zebedee, the one who's called the disciple that Jesus loved, the writer of this gospel, and then Jesus gives another gift. His mother will not be left without a guardian. And he says to her, woman, behold your son. And to John, he says, behold your mother. And here we see Jesus giving to the very end, the servant. There are many examples throughout history of people that we would call great men and women people who sought to do mighty things for humanity with a capital H. But many of them never cared about people as individuals. Historian Paul Johnson authored a riveting book called Intellectuals that documented this fact. Concerning Jean-Jacques Rousseau, the 18th century Genevan French philosopher Johnson said that Rousseau believed that he had a unique love for humanity and had been endowed with unprecedented gifts and insights to increase its felicity. But loving as he did humanity in general, he developed a strong propensity for quarreling with human beings in particular. In another chapter, he recounts a letter written to Russian literary giant Leo Tolstoy by his wife as their children lay sick. She says, You may not especially love your own children, but we simple mortals are neither able nor wish to justify a lack of love for a person by professing some love for the whole world. If we look around ourselves, even today, at the people that we often call philanthropists, and that word philanthropist means lover of mankind, we often find the great men are often not very good men, often that humanity with a capital H occupies the entirety of their love. But Jesus cared here in his agony, both for the salvation of the world and for the comfort of his mother. The individual is never an afterthought to Jesus. When you look at your own life and you consider this picture of the servant who gave all, the king of kings who sat down at the feet of his people, at the feet of his disciples on the night before one of his dearest and closest betrayed him, on the night when he knew just a few hours from now they will all fall asleep as I beg my father to help, just a few hours before he knew that every single one of them would run away in shame and fear as he's dragged off by soldiers Just a few hours before, Peter would deny him three times. Just a few hours before he would stand trial and be condemned on false charges and crucified for them. The servant sat before them and washed their feet. See, the servant Who gave even his clothing to his killers and gave gifts even with his last words Woman, behold your son. Behold your mother. Do you ever imagine yourself to be insignificant or unimportant? Maybe sometimes you feel like a cog in a machine. Maybe right now, more than any time in your life, you feel like a cog that's not in a machine anymore. And you wonder what it's all about. You wonder what it's all worth. You are the apple of His eye. Mary, the mother of Jesus, didn't accomplish great things in a human sense. She didn't invent anything that we know of. She never made a speech that we know of. And yet here we see Jesus caring for her. In fact, the only thing that the Bible tells us about Mary of any real, lasting interest was that she called herself God's servant. And here we see God serving her. The Son of Man and the Son of God cared for her individually. And He cares for you. The whole course of history, is the unfolding of His plan, and to Him, you are not a cog in a machine. You are not a tool. You are not a nothing. You're not a number. You are the apple of His eye. Your life matters. Even the details matter to Him the Messiah, the servant, the king. He knows your needs and he knows what you are going through today as well as he knew Mary's needs that day. So look at the cross and see the servant who gave all, not just for a nameless world, but for his beloved ones, every single one of them named and precious and known to him. There, 2,000 years ago in the cross, And there, in the cross, redeemed. Look at verses 28 to 30. This is our third point. It's the climax of today's text, and so I'm going to read it directly. This is verse 28. It says, After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the Scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. At his arrival at the place of crucifixion, Mark chapter 15 tells us that someone offered him wine mixed with myrrh, which is a sedative, in order to ease his suffering. But Jesus would not take it. But now, it says, knowing that the purpose of his crucifixion had been fulfilled, he speaks knowing that now he would be given something else. The text calls it sour wine. This was the cheap beverage used by soldiers and laborers to keep up their strength in the heat of the day. He would not take the sedative, but now he accepts the sour wine and thereby fulfills Psalm 69, verse 21. They gave me poison for food. And for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. Even the smallest of the details was his purpose. And then verse 30 says that Jesus said, It is finished. It is finished is one word in Greek, to telestai. But it is a wonderful single word. What was finished? Notice that Jesus doesn't say, I am finished, and He doesn't say, it is over. A race can be over without it being completed. I can be finished without having accomplished my purpose, but He says, it is finished, it is accomplished. This is a word that points to a goal being achieved, the completion of a mission, the fulfillment. Of a promise. The cross work of Jesus Christ has come to its completion, and His purpose and God's promise has been fulfilled. In John chapter 17, verse 4, Jesus said, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do, and now Jesus has done exactly that. Everything is done. He has fulfilled his charge. His mission is complete. What did the Father give the Son to do? Mark chapter 10, verse 45 says that even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Less than 24 hours before he said, it is finished, Jesus also said this according to Matthew 26, verse 28, for this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. What has been accomplished here? The ransom has been paid The new covenant between God and man has been established. The Lamb of God has taken away the sins of the world. In Christ, God has reconciled the world to himself. Here, when he says, it is finished, atonement has been won. He has crushed the work of Satan. He has defeated sin. He has freed us from slavery to sin and death. And pay careful to this fact. When Jesus says, it is finished, he has not just made it possible, he has not merely made a provision, he has not merely made us able to be saved. He hasn't just opened the door to life. It is finished, he says. When you put your faith in Jesus Christ and cross over from death to life, you are not finishing what he started for you. You are receiving the finished work that he has accomplished. This is one of the great and mysterious truths that we find in the gospel, that Jesus Christ did not die for the possibility of salvation, but to accomplish it And that means he knew exactly who his death purchased. The good news of Jesus Christ calls you and me and every person, calls to us indiscriminately, declaring that everyone who believes in Jesus will not perish but have eternal life. And every single one who responds in faith will find that they were already known and beloved by God from all eternity past. It is finished, Jesus cried. And then it says he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. So see here in the death of Christ, the death of death. See the king victorious. And now Jesus can rest. Earlier in his ministry, Jesus turns to a man And says to him in Matthew chapter 8 verse 20, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. But after crying, it is finished, John uses that same language. The Son of Man lays down his weary head. In Genesis chapter 1, the Lord created everything that is. By His Word, He speaks the world and and the heavens and light and every creature into existence. And on the seventh day, Genesis tells us, God rested from His works because all was finished. Here on the evening of the sixth day of the week, the work of salvation is done, and the Word of God made flesh says, it is finished and as the sixth day turns to the seventh, he gives up his spirit, and he lays down his head and takes his rest, because nothing remains to be done. When we see these words of Jesus, it is finished, we, ask, we ought to ask ourselves, what remains for me to do in order to come to God? What remains for me to do in order that I can be reconciled to my creator? And when we look at the words of Jesus, the answer comes to us, nothing, because it is finished. How often have you waited to come before the Lord because you feel like you have to get things right first? Maybe You wouldn't admit this to anybody, but right now in your own living room, as you listen to Jesus say, it is finished, maybe here and now, you say to yourself, I have not actually believed that it was done, that my salvation was accomplished, and I keep trying to make up for my sin. I keep trying to Make myself good enough to be forgiven. What have I believed remains to be done for me to be acceptable to God? What I want you to hear from this text is, it is finished. Some of us spend our whole lives feeling like we'll never be acceptable no matter how much we accomplish, no matter how much we try, some of you have achieved great things because you're looking for acceptance from the world or from someone. But Jesus says, come to me, it is finished in me. There is nothing that you can do to add to your salvation. There is nothing that you can do to wipe away your own sins. Even the least of your sins cannot be taken away by any good that you attempt. But he, the Lord has laid on him the sins of us all. He was pierced for your transgressions, and it is finished. So stop waiting to come to Him. Stop putting barriers between yourself and the truth, the glorious gospel truth, that in Jesus Christ, it is finished. I want to turn to the end of our text today and our final point for the day, verses 31 through 37. See the fountain opened. The ancient writers tell us that victims of crucifixion regularly took days to die, but the Jews objected with fierceness to bodies being left on crosses after sundown and especially on the evening before the Sabbath. And so, archaeologists tell us, great wooden mallets would be brought in to break the leg bones of the crucified so that as they hung and unable to push themselves up, they would suffocate and die of shock. Our text tells us that Jesus was spared this treatment, even though the two on either side were treated in this way, because Jesus had already died. But notice that verse 30 had told us He gave up His Spirit, even the moment of His death was His choice. As He said earlier in John's Gospel, His mission was to lay down His own life. No one takes it from him, but he lays it down of his own accord, even to the very moment of death. And then John is insistent that we know a strange thing that happened in verse 34. It says, "One of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water." And then Jesus, uh, excuse me, then John points us back to Zechariah chapter 12, which was written 500 years earlier which you may remember from our Zechariah series a couple years ago. In chapter 12, verse 10, it says, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. says, they shall look upon me, upon him whom they have pierced. These are God's words to, to Israel. But how can you pierce God? By his will. By his choice. This is why he became man. As the beginning of John's gospel tells us, The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father. Now they look upon him whom they have pierced and mourn for him as one mourns for an only child. And the soldiers say, truly this man was the son of God. And then, just a couple words later in Zechariah, chapter 13, verse 1 says, On that day, a fountain shall be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. Why did the blood and the water pour out when Jesus' side was pierced? Here is the sign to us. That the blood of Jesus is the fountain by which our sins are washed away. Jesus tells us, or John tells us in John chapter 20 verse 31, that he wrote down these particular events from the life of Jesus, including the piercing of his side, so that we would believe that He is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing we may have life in His name. And so we come to the question that this text asks of us. What do you see when you look upon Him who was pierced for our sins? The fountain has been opened. The covenant has been enacted in His blood See Him enthroned and praise Him for the gift that He has given to you. Marvel at His victory and see here the fountain of grace and mercy. What do you see when you look upon Him? There is no question more important than that one. More than ever, as we look upon Him and then we look about us at the world around us, more than ever we see the need resurrection. We see the the need for reconciliation to God as people shuffle around like they've just woken up, and I think they have. I think they've been woken from a false sense of security, not only in their health but also in their 401ks and, and their other investments as they look at their retirements go like this and this and all over the place. We saw it before in 2008 But I don't know about you, but sometimes it seems like those bull markets are never going to end. And here we are. And that sense of invincibility is just, it's just gone. And we wake up and stumble around in masks, afraid, our fear of death. Finally on display for everyone to see. But in Jesus, death has been defeated. And you are called, and I am called, to look upon him and see him for who he is. Maybe you've been flipping through channels or searching Netflix for something to binge watch. distraction. This is the sedative, the wine mixed with myrrh that keeps us insulated from our own mortality. Maybe it's not television or or Netflix or something, but what is it? What is the distraction? What is the thing that has kept your eyes off your own need for a Savior? In Pilate's case, it was power, and the need to wield it over those people vindictively. For Jesus' fellow Jews, those who had turned away and cried out, crucify Him, the distraction was the spectacle of it all. As they mocked Him on the cross and laughed, We distract ourselves with the wine mixed with myrrh of power and media and comedy. But then we notice it's all empty, and a time like this really demonstrates that to us. We we get to that moment where we look and we say, the things that I put my hope in are no longer as fulfilling as they used to be. I wonder if you've noticed that. I wonder if uh, in the midst of all of this, you've had that moment where it's just hard to do that thing that you were initially so excited you were going to have more time to do. It's empty because it was always empty. It could never bring lasting joy. But here's joy. If you look upon Him, if you will hear His words, it is finished, and believe in His name, then you will be given a truly indestructible life. This is no promise of health and wealth. It's no promise that any particular disease will pass you by. It's no promise that your 401k will recover it's a promise that no disease, no poverty, no boredom, no fear can possibly take away what he has promised to give. No one can take the life that he gives to you because atonement is accomplished in the death of Jesus. It is finished, and no one t- can take away what he gives. And so you look upon him now, he's, and we say, who is this? We look at that sign, here is Jesus, the Nazarene, the King of the Jews. See the truth in those words. See the glory in the cross. Just as no one took his life, no one took his clothes, no one takes what he has decided to give And he has chosen to give eternal life to everyone who looks upon him in faith. So come to him. Put your faith in him and you will have life eternal, atonement, reconciliation to God. As you come to him, maybe as a believer, maybe your faith has been shaken by the last few months. Look at him and remember, today he knew where you would be. He knew where your heart would be. And when he said, it is finished, it is enough even for today. So look upon him and trust that he has one life for you in his death and resurrection. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray now that you would take your word and apply it to our hearts, that you would teach us to walk in faithfulness to the truth of the gospel. Help us, Lord, not to waver as we struggle with day-to-day life during this pandemic, but instead, Lord, help us to trust in you, to double down in our faith, knowing that you have done for us what we could never do for ourselves, what no government can do for us, what no recovery can do for us, what no vaccine can do for us. You and your Son have accomplished accomplished life and atonement. We lift your Son's name to you, Jesus, the King of the Jews, the King of Israel, the King of kings, and we praise his name. Amen.